The transition from secondary education into the workforce feels increasingly fraught these days. We know we have gaps in our skills, but we're not quite sure what they are or what they will be tomorrow. On today's episode, Joe Fuller, an AEI non-resident senior fellow and co-director of the Managing the Future of Work project at Harvard University, joins us to discuss why and how policymakers, universities, employers, and vocational training programs must collaborate to ensure aspiring young professionals are properly equipped for the transition into the workplace. He helps us understand the barriers to career success and vocational fulfillment, as well as the first steps necessary to combat both the skills gap and the long-term labor shortage. Joe Fuller, welcome back to Hardly Working. Well, I'm delighted to be back. I think I'm your first time Two-episode guest? I think you are. You're my my first repeat, so I'm looking forward to many happy returns uh, in this conversation. Given so. how many tremendous guests you've had already that uh, I've enjoyed listening to, I'm pretty flattered. You're you're very kind. Um, so you're here today because you have a couple new papers out, um, and important ones. Um, and I wanted us to spend a little bit of time talking about those. Let's start with the. Uh, delivering on degrees paper uh, or report really it's it's lengthy i mean uh, and it's got a lot of great empirical data uh in it so why don't you walk us through what that is what was that report and why did you do it well this is a report i did with colleagues at our harvard project on workforce which is a project that links resources from the kennedy school of government my school home school which is the harvard business school and the grad school of education and uh, my other principal co-author was David Deming of the Kennedy School, a very distinguished labor economist. We've been concerned that mechanisms like the college scorecard don't really tease out what elements, what programmatic elements work well to facilitate higher levels of success in the transition from post-secondary education into employment. And we, of course, can see that in the latent data where we have more college graduates ending up underemployed. And uh, we wanted to, um, to start off with a survey of both the scholarly literature and other reports and studies uh, and just see what the data said about not only what worked, but what gets implemented and if it, quote, works, to what end. So what works <laughs> and how well does it work? Uh, well, the uh, I, I should say also there were over 500 papers right. studied, so uh, right. we had a, a quite good sample. The first thing I would say is let, let's define about what works. A lot of the programs that are implemented actually have pretty good data to support that they lead to higher adherence of study, that a lot of the programs help keep you in school, whether that's because you're more motivated or or uh, more convinced that the worth what paid for will be there is an interesting question. So give us a, give us a, just a smattering of the examples of the kinds of, um, um, a, you know, clear example of that would be career coaching. Mm-hmm. So if, if you've got a student that's wavering a little bit about whether or not they can keep this up, is it worth it? Uh, they're, they're maybe not performing very well academically and uncertain they can get through this thing, having an intervention 
of advice, but particularly advice that says there is a future here. We can help you get on that pathway would have a great uh, impact on adherence. Another is experiential coursework. Think about that as work-based learning that's integral to your curriculum. If you're beginning to see what it's going to take, if you are getting exposed to a workplace and feeling that you're learning things in school that are showing up uh, in, in your performance in that workplace, and maybe you're getting positive feedback from a supervisor or a coworker, that instills more confidence. Yeah. Um, it's fundamentally different, though, when we look at what's demonstrably effective in terms of employment outcomes, transitions to work, the pay, uh, uh, household sustaining level of compensation, and are tethered to a career path that's got some upside. Mm-hmm. And a number of those, such as co-op programs uh, or, um, or uh, formal apprenticeship programs, are uh, the, the, the data on, on, on their efficacy is quite compelling. They just don't get implemented very often mm. because the requirements that places on, I think, both the educational institution and finding collaborators in the private sector make it a pretty tough hill to scale. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's um, that is not an unusual challenge in in any of the kind of what works in workforce development kinds of um, inquiries that we've been making. David is part of our team on the Workforce Futures Initiative, and you know, when we started out in that, we were like, okay, we're going to have these playbooks. We're just going to be able to pull them off the shelf. Say, do this, do that. You're going to have great success. Uh, we found a couple things that seem to work sector-based training, you know, being pre- the preeminent example, not easy to scale. Um, those are, uh, complex, expensive, intensive, uh, and, and there may actually be a relationship between the size of the programs and the outcomes that they achieve. I think that's right. And, and what you see very consistently, uh, is you need a, an astronomer would call it a zizergy, but you need a lot of planets to line up at once. You need an educational leader. It could be the head of a community college system. It could be uh, for K through 12, the superintendent of a large school district with political executives who are anxious to advance this agenda and business leaders who are willing to incur upfront startup costs. And getting those all lined up, there's a certain amount of, of just kismet or divine intervention that gives you all of those resources at once so that you can uh, get one of these programs up and running long enough so you have demonstrable success and that creates a virtuous cycle. Yeah, you have to have you have to <laughs> you have to be able to show the people who are helping, you know, they're maybe they're donating resources to help establish it, but their real objective is, you know, are you delivering the people uh, then to them that can help them execute on business. Um, that's a, those are, you don't get one without the other. So, um, uh, talk to us a little bit about some of the findings around, um, uh, the value of the degree and whether it's being used, uh, appropriately in the workplace, uh, to, to, you know, are we asking for too many credentials basically? I think it, there, there was a clear period starting around 2010 when we went a little credential happy. There's been some abating of that in certain industries, although I think if we were 
to really have the data, what we'd see is a lot of corporations are removing degree requirements, but they're not disappearing from specific job descriptions of jobs on offer by those companies. So it's as if the corporate rule is being suspended, but at an implementation level, it's still in place. Um, We did some interesting research in a a separate study about looking at tech companies that had removed the degree requirements. And we studied how the job descriptions had changed after that requirement was removed. And a very interesting pattern showed up, which was there was new language in the job descriptions about social skills. Hmm. That uh, whether it was effectiveness of, of dealing in unfamiliar groups, giving or receiving feedback, spontaneous written and oral communication, all of a sudden a whole paragraphs appeared, which of course suggests that most employers have been using the degree as a proxy. That's what I was going to say. I mean, that the social emotional dimension is, uh, is uh, they were using that as a proxy for screening out people who may not have those very high levels of um, non-cognitive skill. And now of course we know that, neurological development, especially in males, continues into the early 20s. So mm-hmm. it's it, my guess is that, in fact, those stipulations are reflection of accumulated experience by hiring managers that, mm-hmm. you know what, a 24-year-old may be just a little bit more resilient than a 21-year-old. Mm-hmm. Or a 24-year-old, particularly in the current American university system, is much more likely to have dealt with a diverse population. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, that's particularly true for minority students because so often their backgrounds, particularly in major U.S. metros, is college is the first environment which they've been in that is not minority majority. Mm-hmm. So if you're a high school student in Detroit, the vast, vast, vast majority of your classmates are other African-Americans. Mm-hmm. You end up at Central Michigan University, all of a sudden that isn't the case. And this will be the first consistent exposure you've had both away from home but in a population that is not yeah. like yours. And that's an interesting kind of inversion of what we usually think of as a diversity experience, right? I mean, it's usually like how do we bring the experiences of minority communities into majority institutions and in this instance you're talking about how do you sustain a minority student who's suddenly confronted exactly. with a kind of diversity that they haven't had an opportunity to encounter in the past so i think it also dovetails nicely with Roz chetty's work about how income outcomes and academic progression are correlated to factors like living in neighborhoods that have more abundant social resources are more diverse where when you're going, whether it's to the mall or to the downtown or to your place of worship, it's not homogeneous. Mm. You also had some interesting um, insights uh, around differences between men and women. Um, talk a little bit about those. Well, it, it, I'm afraid it kind of plays to some stereotypes, but of course stereotypes are usually rooted in some small part in, in observed reality. The more technical and hard skills oriented the intervention was like an apprenticeship we had an overweight toward males participation and succeeding mm-hmm. the more uh, the initiatives related to to counseling to helping people find pathways it was the inverse it was more likely to have a good efficacy for women and this I think also fits with what we see 
for example, in um, gender responsive to job postings and, and, and submitting an application for a job, women have a much higher rate of abandoning an application midstream because they hold themselves to a much more rigorous standard as to, yes, I actually know I have that skill, where men are way more likely to say, yes, I think I can do that, not that I've got the experience or to bluff their way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, there are clearly attitudes about work and attitudes about confidence and and the, the will, ability to express your skill set in a way that an employer find compelling that distinguish men and women in, in, in pretty interesting ways and ways I think we need to reflect upon as we try to implement more of these effective mechanisms for helping people manage these transitions. I think that's so interesting. It's really consistent with our survey data as it related to the, um, the experience of women in the workplace. Um, that imposter syndrome that you're describing, I'm not quite good enough for this job much more prevalent among women or women were much more likely to say that they had that feeling of not being ready, able, uh, that they were operating at the edge of their, um, competency than men were, uh, when in fact, I think in reality, it could have been the reality could be the opposite actually, you know, of that, so I, I think that I think that's just fascinating, and I know you've had some conversations with Richard Reeves about you know his uh, his work on men. Yes. Uh, how did how does that all come together? First of uh, all, we're both the father of three sons. So oh, okay. Commiserate about <laughs> about uh, uh, living through that. Well, it's clear uh, I think from Richard's work that uh, we we have an increasing challenge with boys and adolescent boys coming through the system in ways that leave them behind in both academic development and social development as they get further into the system. And so the, if you will, the remediation that's necessary in Mm post-secondary, it's going to be a a, a bigger gap Mm. for many of them. And, and there, that shows up in ways that are going to be profoundly important for companies. 58% 58% of current college enrollees are women. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be dealing with a majority female workforce if you employ large quantities of white-collar workers. A majority of medical students are women. A majority of people in PhD programs are women. Not all PhD programs, mm-hmm. but but uh, all PhD programs. So if you've got a, a performance management system or a culture that regularly undermines the confidence of those women in your workplace – you're going to have to think about how I make changes there. Now, maybe as I, as my workforce becomes more female, there's a leavening there. For men, um, how you harness this excitement, ability to focus on hard skills development and somehow match it with social skills development, which is where the, the later maturity cycle of, of men and many of the experiences uh, – that men lack that Richard calls out, such as having male teachers or male coaches. Um, uh, you have to account for those deficits in bringing your male workforce along. I think that when we look at the absolutely just debilitatingly low workforce participation rate for prime working age males, obviously something that's a function of that's been greatly uh, explained by Nick Eberstadt's scholarship 
that that there there's a linkage here mm-hmm. about social mature, maturity. I also found in in work you and I have discussed previously that that people do get discouraged if they keep getting turned down and mm-hmm. and suddenly their ability to flip gradually into that it's not worth the effort anymore uh, is 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 linked to these phenomena that Richard has studied. Yeah, I, uh, I'd be interested in just your reflections on this, but do you think that the pandemic has aggravated this? Um, you know, I, I feel like sometimes what I think I feel like I see, I'm seeing is that people missed a couple pretty important years of social emotional development and they're a little further behind than they, they would be otherwise. And I'm just wondering if that's in, you've observed that or I, I have, I would say it is, uh, with an equal opportunity deployer, uh, destroyer and, mm-hmm. and, and disaster for our, for genders. But I think it was probably more profound for boys yeah. um, for several reasons. First of all, it pandered to distractions like video gaming that are overweighted to boys, it legitimized it to the fact that you're going to spend all day online anyhow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took out some of the uh, discipline of the school day where, well, I can't play, I don't know yeah. anything about video games, so I can't play it during chemistry class. I may not be paying attention, but I can't be doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, boys need as many instances of um, bonding and physical activity and being in the presence of authority figures, particularly other men, as possible. So when you take sports out of the equation or other activities, scouting or mm-hmm or uh, e- even computer club, um, the, you, you, you are eroding some of those things that do contribute to boys' maturation. And, yeah. and uh, I think we'll be paying a price for this for an extended period of time. Yeah, so do I. I mean, I think that's true of most pandemics. They, they're never over. Uh, they just, the, the impacts just kind of morph. For women, I think it showed up as anxiety, uh, you know, like higher levels of anxiety um, disorder, kinds of issues um so nobody nobody got out of the pandemic um uh, easily so we we had a, a dinner last night where we talked about ai uh and uh got to follow up with this conversation but i'm, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on ai and what kind of impact do you think that's going to have on um college education well i think it's going to be profound which is, which is arguably an understatement clearly it's going to enable faculty to reconfigure the way they teach subjects. Um, we're going to eliminate the uh, events. I actually, in my own academic career, I remember rather fondly going into the stacks of, of the university library and pulling books off the shelves and going to the index and looking to see if they're interesting citations. That will all go a glimmer. Unfortunately, the, the post-secondary industry is not very receptive to the need to change its approach to teaching or the content of its teaching, but that will inevitably come. Uh, I do think it significantly changes over time the content of work and what we have to prepare people for. Uh, the, the reliance on certain analytical skills as your hard skill, a hard skill can be running a machine tool or can be knowing how to do double-entry bookkeeping, a lot of those white-collar hard skills are going to be largely displaced by AI yeah. um, because AI will do them perfectly every time, which means what's left. 
Well, you one will need to have the insight and knowledge to be able to essentially check that the AI hasn't uh, expressed a, a flawed version. Mm-hmm. Hasn't of hallucinated. Hasn't hallucinated, or has just been trained incorrectly. I mean, yeah. to, to give the data scientists their their due, but it's also going to raise a premium on two types of skills. The first is how do you frame questions? Yeah. How do you how do you make an inquiry so that a technology will give you the an answer to the question you asked as opposed to an answer to a flawed question that may mislead you. The second thing is technology displaces more elements of work and the, the water level drops. What's left are those social skills. Can I work with others effectively? Mm-hmm. And uh, this is not something we teach readily uh, in post-secondary. I think one of the reasons that programs like co-op programs and apprenticeship programs are so effective is that you're blending the acquisition of hard learning with on the ground, dealing with other people, practical work experiences, where a lot of those soft skills come to the fore, the, the need for them come to the fore. But the coworkers and the employers know they're dealing with an immature product. So an apprentice walks in, uh, maybe 18, 19 years old, that's a very, very important point. Yeah, is, 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 is knows it's just a kid, and they're yeah. going to make mistakes, and they're an apprentice. Their older brother or sister walks in at twenty-two with an associate's degree, with a, a, a bachelor's degree, and we hired this person to do a job. And my gosh, they're not very productive. They're a big disappointment, mm-hmm. and they're three years apart. Right. Actually, just the same kid, three years different in in age and experience. Yeah, I think that's such an important, uh, such an important point. I mean, it, it, the the whole conundrum around AI is the way that it is shifting. <laughs> it's inverting our concerns about um, about automation. You know, it used to be that people who did physical things were the ones who were, you know, most challenged, and now it's going to be the knowledge workers who are going to be facing the most challenge um, and kind of getting people in position to to understand that they that their main job I love the way you put it their main job is learning how to ask the questions the right way uh, I know that when I use chat technology for research I've had to get a lot better at the questions that I ask fortunately it's a pretty I found it to be a pretty forgiving technology it, it gives you better answers than you deserve uh, often um, so it's going to help. It's going to be kind of a partner in learning how to develop those question asking skills. Um, very, very interesting. We we need to get to your second report, um, the partnership imperative uh, report, community colleges, employers in America's chronic skills gap. Um, talk to us about that because I mean, I, I was in the labor department 20 years ago and getting employer engagement was the hardest thing. Uh, now employers are not shy about complaining <laughs> that they are not getting engaged or that the, the system isn't training the people the right way and all of that. So it's a little hard to tell sometimes like the chicken and the egg when it comes to this question, but talk to us about, uh, this partnership imperative. Well, we wanted to understand why the, the, the circumstances you were just describing Brent existed. Why is it? that employers regularly say 
community colleges are an important source of talent, but we're by and large disappointed with the talent they provide. And similarly, we wanted to understand how community colleges who are emphatic that partnering with businesses um, is an integral to their mission um, are so often executing programs to engage employers that are fairly shallow. And we were greatly benefited by the fact that the American Association of Community Colleges elected to help us with this. Community colleges are notoriously difficult to survey. They don't have uh, big overheads. They don't have big administrative staffs. They have very um, – there's no taxonomy for who does what, so you don't have a head of communications or a head of institutional research in in lots of schools you can go to. And through their hard work and partnership, we got um, more than 500 community colleges to respond to, to our survey. And we found two or three things. One was that um, we, we think a big change in the system, even from your time at the Department of Labor, is employers just have a lot more sources of talent now than they used to. If you were looking for certain types of uh, middle skills positions in 1995, you didn't have that many choices. Your logical place to go would be your local community colleges. Now I have all sorts of online tools for finding people. And, and so the competition to be the source of talent has gotten substantially tougher. Whether or not enough community colleges have raised their game response is open to question. I would say they haven't. The second thing we see is that execution of policy on both parts is highly variable. So most community colleges will say, we have an active outreach program to people who have hired our students in the past. But that ranges from community colleges that have an email address at hr. you know at thecompany.com and invite everyone who's hired someone in the last 10 years to the annual gala to community colleges that are actively studying the job postings, actively engaging employers when they see a new job posting or requirement developing a relationship with those employers so the employers are treating them much more like they would an industrial supplier. Mm. They're providing them feedback. They're engaging them early in their strategy. Their presumption is that their current supplier, the local community college, is going to be integral to their talent pipeline. Whereas other community colleges, they remain engaged and and they still get assess as a source of talent, but they're losing relative market share to the other sources. They're often only supplying talent that they've, that they've historically supplied to their local community uh, employers. And very often their, their programmatic growth in terms of their curriculum is in areas that don't really tether to employment that's available locally. Mm. Uh, and that's particularly true of the growth of general studies as an area, a field of study by community college graduates. Yeah, general studies is basically, I think, uh, an admission that that the students coming into the community college have not been adequately prepared in their secondary schooling. So this is a lot of remedial work. And that if you're doing all that remedial work, you've only got so many years that you can then <laughs> add co- other content, you know, teach people how to do something in the, in the workforce. 
There is another stream there, but it's shrinking, which is young people who probably are close to being able to do university work but don't have the means to attend, which is the kind of origins of general studies that community colleges would provide a year or two of articulatable college credit, and someone could get those first two years of four-year degree uh, locally and for much lower cost. But the matriculation rate from general studies into four-year colleges is less than 20%. And that's matriculation rate, not the completion rate. Right. Uh, I do think the remediation that these really are truly grade 13 and 14 uh, is, is particularly, is a major explanatory variable there, especially in major metros where, where K through 12 performance is lagged. So we live in this continent-sized nation, 320 million people somebody's working on every problem in American society, you know, there are, and and not just individuals, but institutions. So we see a lot of challenges in the community college system, higher ed generally. Um, Who, who do you think of when you think of institutions that are really leading the effort to get at some of these challenges, whether it is completion, whether it's, uh, you know, building better pipelines to industry, whatever the challenge is, but you've talked to a lot of these people. So who, who's doing it right? Well, I think there are some real stars out there who outperform and do show an ability to respond to the labor market and engage employers that is replicable by other schools. Um, many of these are, are schools that do already enjoy a high reputation in the community college community. Uh, a good example would be Wake Tech in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is an exemplary school. And um, they are growing rapidly. Enro- enrollment is growing in a negative enrollment uh, growth environment. And they have a, a consistent active dialogue with the employers about what they're looking for, what they're anticipating needing, and creating curriculum that matches the skills that the employer specifies they need in a new employee. And you go there and you go to their healthcare building and it's called the Eli Lilly building. And of course they didn't get that name by accident because Eli Lilly is a large employer in Raleigh for, and they want lab techs and it's a, it's a wonderfully linked system. San Jacinto community college in Houston that has former executives from the process control oriented petrochemical sector on staff who um, have personal relationships. And when they wanted to build a new control room so their students could work in an environment be very much like the one they'd be doing the job, they were able to get companies in the sector to pitch in so they could build an actual control room. And an operator for a process control plant, it makes $70,000, $80,000 as soon as they're they're accepted in the full-time role by the employer. Uh, you also have some schools, Monroe Community College and Rochester, New York, be a great example, that have worked very hard on how do you take people that have lost corporate jobs and help them on a pathway toward getting into a new position that replicates their former income. And they've done a wonderful job in terms of, of things like uh, creating a, a, a software and kind of internet cluster there 
which is almost an offshoring for markets like Boston and New York of a, of, of a reservoir of talent that's highly competent, less expensive, accessible through remote work. You can see the same thing in certain four-year institutions. You know, I'm a proud resident of Boston, and we have Northeastern University, which is the right. platinum standard Fantastic. co-op programs. But you have comp- uh, schools like uh, uh, Worcester Polytech, another hidden jewel in, in Massachusetts, which does a, uh, a great thing in terms of industry-associated training for things like aerospace, University of Cincinnati. Uh, so we have more and more uh, individual campuses that are modeling this. And that gives me hope, and part of the objective of our research is to continue to publicize best practice so that boards of regents or trustees, new chancellors, sitting presidents uh, can discuss how do they up their game, are they doing enough? And it does really, on both employers and, and skills providers' side, it requires them getting beyond not just are they say they're doing something, mm-hmm. but are they executing in depth and is having the desired outcome? If a large employer is disappointed in the quality of talent available to them from their local community college, they wouldn't. They if if they had that for a ball bearing supplier, they would be on a plane to their ball bearing company to discuss with them what's not working. So you see relationships. Or they'd be finding another supplier. Or they find another supplier. Yeah. And, and, and so you look at the relationship of the Disney with Valencia, which is an outstanding community college in, in Orlando. They are constantly in dialogue about what's working, what isn't. In Disney's case, about how they can develop more programs that let entry-level Disney workers working on a Disney-provided education benefit move outside the company into a better paying job because Disney says in our cast, we're always going to have a 25 to 30 to one ratio between frontline cast members and supervisors. There just aren't that many opportunities to get promoted here relative to the size of the workforce. So we want people's work experience at Disney to leave them with a strong positive impression having worked here. And this was a great first place for them to work. And then they, matriculated, if you will, in their careers to a job outside of Disney that gave them higher earnings potential. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, we, it, there's something ingrained in us that says if we, don't, if we don't move up in our current job, then we have failed. And that isn't, in the circumstances you've just described is not the case. It's that there are hundreds of you and we've got one manager job the open. And so it's going to be extremely competitive. It's not a matter of failing. Um, and, you know, and, and trying to like, we're, we're, we've left the era of one job for a lifetime. We left that era an era ago. Um, and, uh, and getting used to that idea of really a sort of a flexible, fungible workforce where people are moving around, uh, going sideways and up and over to advance, I think is really, really important. Our research shows that over 60% of low-wage workers' first preference is to stay with their current employer if they can advance and grow and Mm -hmm. earn more. Mm -hmm. And it's when they, unlike a lot of employers' impressions, it's not when they conclude uh, they can't make more, uh, it's uh, that that they... leave. It's when they find a job 
that's easier to get to in terms of transport mm-hmm. that pays about the same. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some industries where the failure of employers to show that pathway is a oversight of management, is bad management because there are mm-hmm. pathways for it. You can see that in banking where the supervisor ratio to frontline workers is often one to five. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you are Disney, if you are an Amazon, you, you're never going to, the, the, the arithmetic's never going to clear creating that pathway forward to someone so they can really benefit from having work for you and in a very clear-eyed way, reducing your turnover, increasing your productivity. It nets out as a good investment for you, but it's a win-win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think more and more employers are getting that message, often partnered with some of these better empl- educate, ed- educators. So if you look at um, the Amazon program, they have a very active relationship with the Western Governors University, very active relationship with local community colleges. The jobs they're training for in their big distribution centers are jobs that are available locally. They're not just generically available. You get a good job somewhere in America. Mm-hmm. They're specifically in mm-hmm. Dallas, Fort Worth, you know, in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Um, so let's, um, it, our exit question here, I uh, wanna zoom out a little bit. Um, and and just talk about workforce demographics because I keep stumbling uh, on this topic of you know, we're so worried about AI and automation and the end of work and but actually it all seems to be running in in reality it's running it feels like it's running the other direction because we just don't have the kind of growth in our workforce um, that we used to and we're and and of course, this is a big challenge for higher ed uh, or post-secondary institutions because they're seeing enrollment uh, come down too. And I would really like to hear you just dilate on that issue for a second. I mean, where where do you come down? Um, are we are we actually headed into an era of workforce surplus, or are we are we in a chronic shortage? We'll be in a shortage for some time um, because birth rates have dropped, and of course, that's been buffeted by economic dislocations going back to the 20 to year 2000 internet recession. Um, simultaneously, there have been uh, a interruptions, particularly during COVID of immigration, uh, both uh, legal and unofficial immigration, which um, are show up in the workforce. Um, the, the truth of the matter is that the U S is showing the same, demographic problems as most of our peer competitors, happily not nearly as severe as some of the Western European countries or China, which has got a severe demographic problem because of the long-term effects of the one-child policy. But many of the, much of the uh, workforce that is topping up our uh, natural birth rate does come to the United States with very limited skills, limited education background, English as a second language issue. There is, of course, um, a very important systems effect on most of the post-secondary system. Most of the post-secondary system is a cash business. It's the equivalent of your corner dry cleaner. Uh, If people aren't coming in the door every day, they will run out of money soon. And they are highly dependent on student loan and student grant revenue to finance their operations. If you put in the types of pressures that states have been applying to their their financing of post-secondary education, uh, you, you have a toxic brew there 
of a growing set of financial constraints. And this, of course, tragically swims against everything I was saying to you earlier, that we need these schools to invest more in their relationship with companies, uh, have more uh, investment potential to develop programs that directly relate to good paying jobs, the ability to buy the software licenses or the infrastructure to, to be able to teach people current level skills that will get them on those secure pathways. And uh, we are, for our current population, we're over-classroom just like we're over-retailed and over-quick-service restaurant. There's too much of everything in America. Uh, that causes, Too much of everything and yet not enough of everything. Well, not uh, enough quality of yeah. everything and, and, and certainly not enough action informed by clear-eyed, objective information. Mm-hmm. So when we don't have insight and most importantly, learners don't have insight as to this program in my community college led to significant percentage of the graduates getting employed in that field of study, making X amount with only Y amount of default. We, we, the customers for these programs have no Amazon ratings. They have no consumer reports magazine. They rely on everything from go back to our discussion about gender issues. What are they confident in? Uh, Do they feel that they can do college level math? Do they feel that a a job that's got technology embedded is is going to be something that they can't do because they're quote, not good with computers? Um, Do they, do they think suffer from imposter syndrome Um, or, and, and do they understand that if you, study, a uh, field of study uh, like pharmacy tech, uh, which is a, 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 uh, a job that is unique in so much as pharmacy tech uh, is not a particularly good paying job in the United States. It largely exists because of craft laws that inhibit use of automation in pharmacies. This is not a pharmacist. This is someone who assists a pharmacist. Uh, but um, it's, it's also almost unique in, in the healthcare system in so much as it's not cited as a presumed or preferred prior experience for any other job, literally any other job in the system. It mm. is a perfect cul-de-sac. Mm. But it, it pays on average in the United States around $30,000. So a, a, a young learner can come in and end up in that path because they, there are a lot of Walgreens, there are a lot of CVSs, mm. indoor work, healthcare is a, you know, my, my parents are caregivers or my my you know, brother or sister said, healthcare is a growing field. That sounds good to me. And boy, that, you know, managerial accounting, that was a little scary with mm-hmm. that, 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 um, you know, basics of, of manuf- industrial engineering, gosh, would, you know, is that, is that for me? And, um, we, one of the things we call for, uh, in this, in this paper you've, you've introduced is we really do need to give people better information, objective mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm. And we, we and and the funder for much of this is the federal government. So sometime in my lifetime, I hope we reauthorize the Higher Education Act, and I'm very much hoping that this type of data requirement will be built into it. And it's been introduced historically by bipartisan groups of legislators. So this is a purple issue. It's not mm-hmm. it's not ideological. Mm-hmm. It's just good for young people to get on secure paths to economic independence. Well, for those of our listeners who are looking for that kind of good, objective information, I cannot recommend Joe Fuller's work highly enough. Where well, can they, find um, they can find it here at AI because yes, all my papers are, are 
are posted on my biographical page here. Also, if you Google uh, Joe Fuller, Harvard Business School, Managing the Future of Work, or Joe Fuller, Harvard Project and Workforce, uh, you will you will find you will, you will a, find a, a, a lot of stuff that is minimally guaranteed to address problems of insomnia, if nothing else. <laughs> well, on that, thanks so much for coming on Hardly Working Again, and uh, we will talk to you again in a few months. I appreciate it, Brent. It's always great to be with you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.